for checking out another episode of the Santa Mind Podcast Experience. And today I have a wonderful guest on the line with me. She was one of the first believers in Santa Mind, one of the first people to record content, and she recorded a lot of great content that's up on the Santa Mind app. Uh, I was very excited because she was the first doctor that I had on the app, so I was really excited. I was like, wow, this is a doctor. This is a real thing. All right, this is great. Um, her name is Dr. Natalie Feinblatt, and I'm excited to have her on the show. So, um, Natalie, would you just tell us a little bit about, about yourself? Sure, um, and thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm happy to have been a part of Sanomine from the the start. I didn't know that I was the first psychologist on there. Um, yep. <laughs> so, um, so thank you for having me on. Um, my name is Dr. Natalie Feinblatt. I am a licensed psychologist in Los Angeles, California. Um, I am pretty much just in private practice at this point, um, and I specialize in. Uh, my two big areas of specialty are addiction and trauma. Um, I do have some other populations that I work with, but those are the big two. Um, and I think today we'll be talking a, a little bit more about the trauma side of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm really interested in the trauma side of things because I mean, it's I have a I have a friend that. Um, kind of spoken to me a lot about trauma and you know I went through a lot of stuff myself in my childhood that just just recently now like memories are starting to come back and I you know I don't know if that's because my entire 20s I was you know drinking a lot because I guess I was trying to mask things or mm-hmm. now that I'm doing the standalone thing I'm thinking a lot of a lot more things I'm learning a lot more so I am really interested in trauma especially after you know, I heard your episodes on EMDR. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into EMDR, I'd like to, you know, you said you, you're in private practice. And mm-hmm. I, I'd just like to touch a little bit of, uh, upon that. Um, how do you, how did you get to, like, how do you start from, I guess, let's go, like, z- from going from zero to one? You know, you, you start mm-hmm. a private practice and now you have to get clients. You know, mm-hmm. could you just take us through that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I am... You know, people, whether they're, you know, therapists or psychologists, um, we all kind of have our own paths that we go in. Some people um, go into private practice right out of school, um, but that was not the path that I took. Um, Pretty much starting from when I was getting my master's up until three and a half years ago, um, which is, you know, gosh, 15-ish years, um, I... I did not have a private practice. I worked in facilities and in programs as like a, a, a staff member, as an employee. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I did the majority of the therapy that I did with people. I was a primary therapist. I worked in residential facilities. I worked in intensive outpatient and outpatient facilities. Um, and it wasn't until three and a half years ago that I decided to open up my private practice at the time on a part-time basis while I was still working part-time at a program. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was lucky in that regard in that because I already had a part-time job with a salary, um, I could kind of afford to build my practice up kind of slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, Not everybody has that luxury for any number of reasons. Um, But I've pretty much been building my practice up slowly but surely over the last three and a half years. 
Um, <clears throat> and it wasn't until about six months ago that I finally took the leap <laughs> and left, I left my salary job um, and to just do private practice. I, I, I am still doing some contracting work at programs, but my focus now is on my practice. Oh, that's great. That, that That's a great story. I didn't know that you... Mm-hmm. That you just took the jump six months ago because from, yep. from just, you know, my point of view and just seeing how you, you know, how, how you, um, hold yourself and mm-hmm. seeing, seeing if I, if I Google you, you're all over, you're all over the first page of Google. So I thought you've been <laughs> doing this for at least a couple of like four to five years. So yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. Thank you. Um, and just to backtrack a little bit, you know, cause I like to, to hear like the origin story, but what inspired you to become a psychologist? Well, um, I mean, it, there's a few different, uh, layers to that. Um, you know, on probably the most surface layer was that, you know, when I, um, I'm from Los Angeles, but I went to UC San Diego to get my undergrad, um, degree before I, I came back to LA for my master's and my doctorate. And, you know, when I went to UCSD and it was time to pick a major, I thought psychology sounded interesting. And I thought, well, if, if, if it's not uh, as interesting as I'm hoping, I can always change my major. And clearly, I did, did not change my major. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I stuck with it all the way through um, to getting my doctorate. On a more um, kind of a deeper level than that, you know, I <clears throat> I'm of the opinion that most people who work in mental health, and this is just my opinion, but most people who work in mental health. Um, are probably drawn to this field because we have issues of our own. Um, and I was no exception, am no exception. And, um, you know, I personally have been in therapy for many years and it's helped me tremendously. Um, and I think that part of the reason I was drawn to working in this field was because I could see what a difference it was making in my life. And I thought, well, I, I enjoy this process from this vantage point. Why don't I become a professional and, and do it from the other vantage point? Because not only am I already doing it, but I, I'm benefiting from it. So I'm sold already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Process. Um, and then it's actually funny, uh, just as a, a third element to it, was that I, when the X-Files, the TV show, the X-Files mm-hmm. was on, um, I was a huge X-Files fan um, for pretty much the whole time it was on. And it wasn't until recently that I was reminded that one of the main characters, Fox Mulder, is a psychologist. That, oh, wow. Like, he doesn't, he's not in, he doesn't practice therapy on the show, obviously. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. He has a doctorate in psychology, and I thought, wow, I wonder if that influenced me, too. Like, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Some of those things, like. I, I look at a lot of things that I'm interested in, not not now, but I'm kind of noticing now yeah. from when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. now it's kind of like the past two, three years, I've been like putting the, it's like putting the puzzle together. I'm like, wow, you know, I'm doing sound of mine. When I was a little kid, I was interested in psychology. And when you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say I wanted to be a, a psychologist, uh, an actor, and a singer. <laughs> And I, I took my favorite courses in in college were psychology, anthropology, and philosophy. So like, I, but back then I would never have thought like, wow, I'm why am I interested in these things? But now that I'm older, I'm like, 
putting the puzzles puzzle together and I'm like, wow, that's why I'm inter- I was always interested in that. And things that you're interested in never, they kind of like never leave you because now yeah. I'm still, you know, I'm yeah. back in it. So that's, I think that's pretty cool. But, um, so yeah, so what is the difference? And this is, I, I've been, you know, wondering this as well, but what's the difference between a psychologist and a, a licensed mental health, um, counselor? Like a therapist. Um, well, I, I actually think we'd have to go back and check, but I actually think I did a Stanomine segment on this mm-hmm. um, because it's something that, that people ask all the time. And yeah. I'm going to preface this by saying that it is different in every state, which makes it all okay. the more confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I can only speak for California. Okay. Um, in California... Um, gosh, how do I describe this? So it's, it's one of those word puzzles where it's like psychologists are therapists, but not all therapists are psychologists. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is in California, there are degrees that you can get with like, you have a bachelor's degree and then you get like a specialized certification in things like a chemical dependency counselor or a licensed personal counselor, LPC, which I think is what you were referring to. Yeah. Um, then you go a step up and get a master's degree, like an MFT in California, a marriage and family therapist. Um, that person is a therapist. Um, and then if you go even beyond that and get a doctorate, which is like what I did, mm-hmm. um, and you have either a PhD or another equivalent thing called a PsyD, um, you are then Dr. So-and-so and you're a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can call myself a therapist and a psychologist, but if somebody who didn't have a doctorate called themselves a psychologist, they could get in big trouble because that's a protected term. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the hardest things, um, you know, when looking for a therapist, mm-hmm. it's like, oh man, you know, which one do I choose? Right. And not knowing anything, uh, in, in my, you know, in my opinion, I would go straight to, you know, the doctor or PsyD. But, you know, it, it's always, you, you did record a segment on that. That, that was one of my favorites as well because oh, good. it cleared things up. But I'm still always, searching for the for this because there are so many different designations throughout the country like i i just saw one the other day it was like l i s w d yeah oh my god that's a new one i've never heard that one (laughs) i know i don't know if we'll if as a country and and as a collection of states we'll ever get our act together and all have the same designations but it's it's made more confusing by the fact that it all depends on what state you're in because there are certain degrees or licenses in california that don't exist in other states and vice versa. So it's complicated. Yeah. And like therapists in training are, are called associates in California, but everywhere else, I think it's just, they're just unlicensed. Right. Exactly. Our interns. Yeah. Our interns. Yeah. yeah. But I, I like, I like associate because it makes them at least, you know, it gives them a, a title at least. And someone, you know, yeah. People love to look at titles. Yeah. But, they do. Okay. So you, you, you spoke about trauma. You said you specialize in trauma. Mm-hmm. And one of your segments on Sanomine was uh, about EMDR, and mm-hmm. I didn't know anything. I've never heard about that until you sent me that segment. That's when I actually started getting interested in and reading about it. Cool. And so could you explain a little bit more what EMDR actually is? Sure. 
Um, and some of this, even though I'm kind of speaking off the cuff right now, some of this will definitely sound similar to what's in that recording. Mm-hmm. Um, so EMDR, EMDR is one of those things like in therapy, we have this laundry list of different types of treatments that all have these different acronyms. Um, and it can get overwhelming as a therapist to keep track of all these different types of treatment. So I can very much understand why the layperson would be very confused or have no idea um, what certain things are. Um, so EMDR is one of those many tools that we have um, and many different types of therapy we can get trained in. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement and Desensitization Reprocessing. <laughs> um, so you can tell why we call it EMDR because yeah. that name is a pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah. um, and it really doesn't tell you a whole lot about what it does, like something to do with eye movements and then what, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so what EMDR is, is it is a specific technique used in therapy that empirically, it has a lot of empirical research behind it has been shown to be very effective in reducing symptoms related to trauma and the symptoms of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, now, like a lot of techniques in the field of psychology, EMDR started out as being for like one specific thing, which was trauma. But as the years go on, the research and practice begins to indicate that it can actually help with a lot of other things, too. Um, depression, anxiety, phobias, things like that. Um, but the original and probably still the main purpose that it's known for is to help people um, cope better with having been through trauma. Um, now, it's important to know that, and I, I think that, This is something that as a society we're getting better at, but I think we still have a long way to go. It's important to know that that trauma isn't as restrictive of a definition as it is sometimes thought to be. You know, typically when people think trauma, they think, you know, um, sexual assault, um, physical assault or injury, um, you know, car accidents, natural disasters, being, you know, um, hurt physically, and all of those things are definitely trauma. Mm-hmm. But there are also things that maybe don't involve physical uh, um, injury or don't involve the threat of, of dying or death that can still be, um, quote-unquote, they can still count as trauma, um, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, mm-hmm. um, you know, being being abused, even if no one ever lays a hand on you, can still be trauma, depending on the circumstances. Um, So what EMDR is, is that it is based on the theory that our brains have a way of processing information that is ultimately to our benefit. So our brains are able to take in information from the world around us and process that information in such a way in that we learn from it, we grow from it, we're able to to gain what we need to and then kind of move on. Um, And the way that I, I'm a very visual person, so I kind Mm -hmm. of think of this as like a conveyor belt, you know, Mm -hmm. like 
life experience plops down on one side and it go you know the conveyor belt moves and all these different things happen to it and then it you know plops out on the other side as like an experience that you learn from right yeah um the theory in EMDR is that when somebody experiences trauma the conveyor belt breaks so there's this traumatic thing that happened to you and your brain is trying to process it but but because of how upsetting and disturbing and overwhelming the situation was, it overwhelms this system and this incident and this memory does not get processed properly and doesn't make its way down to the end of the conveyor belt. And what the problem with that is, is that when something gets stuck on the conveyor belt, it starts to cause all these symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you you can't stop thinking about it. It 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 pops into your mind intrusively. Um, you get very anxious or scared. Certain things trigger you to the point where you get overwhelmed and possibly even can't cope with them. You have nightmares, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So EMDR is the process of restarting that conveyor belt so that memory can move all the way through your brain's processing system and come out on the other side as essentially just another memory. Um, wow. You know, EMDR is not about trying to forget what happened to you. Um, that's, you know, that's not possible. We, yeah, yeah. You know, I always think of the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. um, and it's like we're not there at, at this point in time mm-hmm. in terms of uh, being able to wipe things from our minds, but we can help EMDR can help people get to a point where it's not causing them all these symptoms. It's, it's a thing that happened to them. It was upsetting, but they've learned from it and grown from it and are able to move on now. And I, I know I've been talking for a while. I'm no, no, go ahead. This is, this is great. <laughs> this is great stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm intrigued. Okay, good. Um, so the question that a lot of people have for me at this point is like, well, how does it restart the conveyor belt? Like, what are you actually doing with somebody that that causes this, you know, processing to to kick back into gear? Mm-hmm. So, what it is, I, I like to preface it by saying that you know, um, the woman who came up with this technique, Dr. Francine Shapiro, yep. she has uh, this company now called the EMDR Institute, and they are who trained me, and they're the ones who do the bulk of the research on this technique. They are very upfront about this, and I like to be very upfront about this, which is that I'll explain the technique, but we still don't know why it works. They are still doing research on that, like neuroimaging research on it. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know still why exactly this works. We just know that it does. Yeah, because that was the interesting thing that I, I don't mean to cut you off, but no, that's okay. Because uh, I read that, you know, um, Francine Shapiro was the one who invented this, and it yep. was also in the 80s, so it's fairly new. Yep. And and I read that she she noticed that moving her eyes from side to side seemed to reduce the occurrence of her own mm-hmm. distressing memories. Right. And I I thought that was amazing. Like, how do you how did how does that just happen by mistake? <laughs> and and then she saw that there was something happening. Like, how does that happen? Do you have do you have any idea or insight into that? Um, well, my understanding is that initially she was working um, with veterans uh, way back when, and she noticed that the veterans, when she was talking to them about their trauma in therapy, the things they'd been through in combat, 
that she started to notice that the clients that would kind of move their eyes back and forth while they were talking about their trauma seemed to be doing better overall than the clients who would just like look at her or look at the wall or just kind of have a fixed gaze. Um, And that's how she started. She just made this observation and then she tried it herself and she also noticed, oh, I feel better when I'm talking about this stuff and I move my eyes back and forth. And that's really how it all started was just her observing these veterans talking about their trauma, seeing that the ones who were doing better um, were exhibiting these eye movements and her just starting to kind of be like, I wonder if I led clients through these eye movements during therapy, if that would help. Turns out that's, it did. <laughs> that's amazing. Because yeah. I always, when, I, when I'm speaking to somebody or back, back then when I was interviewing for, you know, for a, a job role or a company, I would always move my eyes around when I, because I was trying to think about, you know, mm-hmm. trying to pull things out of my brain to find the answers. Right. But I always, you know, when you, I don't know if it's like widely known or people, or it's just like a, a rumor, but when you look to your left, it, you, you might be thinking of a lie or if you look mm-hmm. to the right, you might be saying the truth. So I was always worried, oh man, I can't look to the left <laughs> because they're going to think I'm lying. <laughs> right. But, but what, that's why when I read that she was doing this and now you said that she saw veterans doing that, mm-hmm. you know, it makes me think like, you know, I'm moving my, I'm not, in, I wasn't in therapy, but I'm moving my eyes back and forth looking for answers or something. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very interesting that she got that information from them moving the eyes. That's, yeah. that's awesome. That's amazing. Very, very perceptive of her. I don't know if I would have picked up on that myself. Yeah. Very, very receptive. Yeah. Now, how, how, how does something like this get approved? Like, how, how does she, how did this become from something that she saw to mm-hmm. thinking that, hey, oh, it might help others? And now it's something that's, you know, she has an institute and Mm. people use this in therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not, I'm not an EMDR historian. I'm sure there are people out there that know (laughs) the history much better than I do. Mm. But from my training, it's my understanding that she just kind of started to ask her clients, the ones who weren't doing it already, hey, is it okay? I have this theory that this might help you. I don't know if it will, but I doubt it will hurt. Um, you know, while you're talking about your trauma, can you, if I move my, my finger, you know, back and forth, can you just follow my finger with your eye and then tell me how you feel at the end of the session? So she did, you know, enough people said, fine, I'll try it. She did it enough to where she brought it, you know, to her supervisor's attention at the VA and they started to think, well, what if this is some sort of a protocol that we can, um, create like a like a protocol around this so we can start to to test it and research it um and it pretty much went from there you know that the more research is done on it the more it's like yeah this really does help people you know reduce or sometimes totally get rid of um trauma related symptoms and as i said earlier we still don't know why this works i mean the basic kind of neurology of it is that you know, we have these two hemispheres of our brain, right? The right and the left Mm -hmm. hemisphere. And there's a part, there's a structure in the brain in between the two of them called the corpus callosum. And that is literally the part of the brain that allows our two hemispheres to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And the example I like to give people is that um, oftentimes, or not oftentimes, sometimes 
when people have severe, severe epilepsy, um, they will do a type of brain surgery where they sever the corpus callosum. Um, so that if, like, for instance, if a, if a seizure starts in the left hemisphere, it can't then bounce back and forth between the left and the right because the corpus callosum has been severed. So it just kind of, the idea is to reduce the amount of activity that the seizure can create. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to exhibit how important the corpus callosum is in people who have had them split, they will literally, like if they're wearing a jacket, zip up their jacket with their right hand and then unzip it with their left hand because oh, wow. the, the two parts of their brain literally have no idea what the other side is doing wow. uh, because they're, they're not able to communicate. So any activity like the eye movements in EMDR where you're looking left, you're looking right, you're looking left, you're looking right, that involves brain signals being sent across the corpus callosum or as we call it across the midline of the body. So if you think of like a, a a vertical line that runs from like the top of your head to your nose to your chin, like all the way down and totally splits your body in half, that's the midline of your body. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, again, we don't exactly know why yet, activating <laughs> the corpus callosum while talking about trauma reduces symptoms. I mean, there's theories about why it works, and, and like I said, research is still being done to determine the exact reasons why. And just to add this on to the end of it, I don't know if they'll ever change the name of EMDR because it turns out that any sort of stimulation that crosses the midline of the body will achieve these results, meaning it doesn't have to be eye movements. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, what I do with a lot of clients um, is, um, of course, there are now companies that sell these for therapists who do EMDR, but you give them these little buzzers and they put one in their right hand and one in their left hand. And then you turn on this machine and it's just like a little, like a little massage sensation, but it just goes, you know, on the right hand, bzz, left hand, bzz, right hand, bzz, left hand. Bzz. And if the client is thinking about their trauma while this is happening, that's crossing the midline of the body, right? Yeah. Um, some, some people do it with touch, like, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, tap your right knee, tap your left knee, tap your right knee, you know, anything that involves the right and the left, not just eye movements will work. Wow. That, that, this is, this is amazing stuff. This is very interesting. This is why I was, was, was doing a little bit of research on, on uh, Google about this because I think it's really cool. But, um, so like you know i was reading that you know this was basically came out or was invented in the 80s mm-hmm. now are and kind of kind of by accident now are there new techniques that are on the in i guess the pipeline or you know are people trying to research new ideas new techniques or this do these techniques just they just come out of the blue like like <laughs> this one did um, no, there are absolutely always people researching new techniques. I mean, there are many other trauma-specific modalities that are out there, things like somatic experiencing or sensory motor therapy. Um, and then there are also um, kind of offshoots of EMDR because I think like any really successful and effective therapeutic technique, people kind of take it and, and 
put their own twist on it. Um, there's attachment-based EMDR, which was created by a, a therapist named Laurel Parnell. There are several different kind of EMDR offshoots. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I quite frankly would like to get trained in attachment um, focused EMDR because I, I know a few people who do it and it seems like a very interesting kind of tech set of techniques to add on, um, you know, to the, the, the pre-existing EMDR protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's constant, there's constant innovation in the field of psychology. Um, it's just really a question of like, first of all, what's effective, right? Because mm-hmm. what's yeah. effective will gain traction. Um, and also, you know, how much a, a person is able to get their ideas out there to start drumming up interest and support to, to get other people trying it. Have you ever been interested in or thought about coming up with a new technique or do you think you, is that something <laughs> in your know, future? Yeah, it's crossed my mind a few times. Um, I, I, it's still not quite evolved enough for me to um, really speak about it in uh, in detail, but it it has definitely crossed my mind, and we'll, we shall see what the future brings. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how does that happen? If you if you think that a certain technique that maybe formulating in your mind can be helpful, are you allowed to try to test that with a client or do you have to get some sort of approval to test out the technique that you think might work? You know, that's a really good. I, that's a really good point. I I hadn't thought it through to that extent. I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, boy, you'd have to go back to to like the ethics code governing your specific license. But <laughs> um, I would imagine, you know, obviously you need to practice within your scope of practice. You can't start doing something um, that is, you know, outside the scope of what you would normally do. Um, And, you know, again, going back to the it's different everywhere and for every license, um, you know, I know that as a psychologist in California, um, I'd have to look up the exact verbiage in my ethics code. But there's definitely um, guidelines I have to follow in regard to not doing things that are too far outside the realm of what we call evidence-based practices um, and EMDR is one of those, but and there's a lot of them, but um, I would, yeah, you would need to make sure. And quite frankly, if I was to ever come up with a a technique um, that I I wanted to try out, I would absolutely have to go to my, the board of psychology, which is my licensing board to, you know, discuss that with them before ever trying it on, on a client. Gotcha. So, I, so I mean, this is exciting to me because it's like there there can be more innovation within mental health, but oh, you know, yeah. not for entrepreneurs like on on my side, but you know, mm-hmm. for doctors like yourself, you guys can invent techniques. That's awesome. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just to give you an idea, and I, I'll make this brief, but about six months ago, um, I. I was contracting at a, at a trauma facility and they wanted us to do this training for something that I had never heard of. It's called CRM and that stands for comprehensive resource model. Um, and it's a, it's a relatively new, I mean, it's been around for maybe like, I want to say between five to 10 years, um, trauma specific modality created by a therapist who lives in Colorado, um, who has spent the last five or 10 years really trying to get this off the ground in terms of 
writing a book, which she has, um, you know, doing trainings, um, refining the techniques. Now they're doing kind of imaging, neuroimaging studies on it. Um, and it's, it's a very complex technique that I, I'm not going to get into, I'm not going to get into right now, but I mean that I'm, I, I just goes to show that like six months ago I was like, Oh, what is this? Oh, it's something I yeah. can get trained in and, and it's got some, some weight behind it. And yeah, there's always, always new stuff happening, which uh, is something I really like about this field. Yeah. And, and psychology uh, as a whole is, is fairly new, isn't it? It's like, I don't know what 150 years, 200 years old. Mm-hmm. Since, yeah. So how do you? So you you focus on on, on you specialize on trauma and mm-hmm. you know I guess you know if someone comes in to see you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for trauma treatment, do you? How do you know that you know what technique to use? Do you tell them, hey, listen, I focus, I use EMDR, and we'll try that. If that doesn't work, we'll try something else. Or do you, you know, speak to the patient a couple, a couple um, weeks and then figure out what works best for them? Yeah. Well, you, this brings up an important point about EMDR, and this this goes for, you know, some people see me come to see me specifically because they see I do EMDR and they want to try it. Mm-hmm. Um, other people come to me for trauma and. Um, if I think it's appropriate, I bring up EMDR to see if they want to try it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the important um, issue that you're you're kind of touching on here is that there are there is an assessment period that you have to go through with somebody before you to, to even determine if EMDR is right for them at this point in time um, because it's not right for everybody at, at every point in their life. Um, the two the two biggest things that determine if somebody is appropriate for EMDR are number one, their emotion regulation skills, um, because EMDR can involve remembering and thinking about trauma that you've been through. Um, and if somebody is not very skilled, if somebody, first of all, gets upset very easily, um, and if they're not very skilled at knowing what self-care tools they need to use to kind of calm themselves back down, that can be a counterindicator for EMDR. Um, and the other thing is dissociation. Um, EMDR is not recommended for people who dissociate a lot. Now, I, I say a lot because oftentimes part of trauma response is dissociation. So di- it's not like diso- if you dissociate, you can't do EMDR, right? That's mm-hmm. not what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, and there's a specific um, assessment tool that I use to, to try to gauge how much somebody dissociates. But if somebody is dissociating on a pretty chronic basis or um, is suspected to have something like dissociative identity disorder, that could be a counterindicator for EMDR as well. Um, so first of all, I, I have to assess if the person has enough emotion regulation skills and if they're not dissociating too much. Um, and even then... Um, you know, it really depends. Like there are certain people who I would recommend it for. Um, and there are certain people where it wouldn't necessarily be my first recommendation, but if they want to try it, we certainly can, you know, that's the thing about all these therapy techniques is that there's, there's no one thing that works for everyone. You know, we're not Mm -hmm. there yet. Um, I've done EMDR with some people and seen 
really amazing results. And I've done EMDR with a few people who it didn't seem to make much of a difference with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's really just about the willingness to keep trying things until you find something that works for you. Yeah, yeah. And th- there are a lot of uh, CVT-based apps out there. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think this is something that can ever be on an app or? I I feel like there are apps already out there for EMDR. Already, wow! Yeah, I have, and I, have I know look. that there are YouTube videos <clears throat> that are for quote unquote self EMDR. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know about the apps and the videos because I looked into them when I was first getting trained Mm -hmm. and I I haven't looked into them a ton. Um, I don't know. I don't know if EMDR would be appropriate. Well, first of all, I know this might sound silly, but if you're doing it on an app, honestly, your phone screen isn't big enough for you to really do the eye movements (laughs) (laughs) to the, to the full extent. Um, However, you know, I've, I've seen, there are these um, there are these things called touch points. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Um, it's this company that makes they're essentially EMDR devices, but they're sold for like relaxation and helping with insomnia and things. Mm-hmm. Where you put a buzzer on each wrist and it goes, you know. Bzz, 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 bzz. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's already products out there for oh, wow. the layperson that are EMDR esque. Um, but I think if you're, if you're looking for EMDR specifically for a trauma that you've been through, I would recommend trying a therapist over first, at least yeah. over an app or a video or something you found online, um, just because of the potential for getting kind of activated around your trauma. And if you're not with a professional, you, you might not be able to, to calm down or get grounded, um, around that. It would just be a little dicey. Yeah, this this sounds like something that's that's kind of deeper or, you know, it sounds more serious than not to say that CBT isn't good or serious, but it sounds like, you know, it, it's a traumatic event and you're yeah. you're like digging deep within. So mm-hmm. it sounds better like, you know, that it would be with a professional instead of a YouTube video yeah, or exactly. or an app. Cuz then what, you know, it's if it was me then I'd say, "All right, I did this video, now what's next?" Right. Yeah, I'm watching the same thing over and over. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what do you? I, and I ask. I've been asking this to all of uh, the therapists that I've had on the podcast so far, which has been three. You're number four. Oh, great. Um, but what? So, what do you think the future of therapy is? You know, there's a lot of technology coming out. There's text therapy. There's video count. There's video therapy. There, you know, there's Stand of Mind where it's pre-recorded audio. Mm-hmm. And na- there's another company now that. They've been actually doing a lot of research for the past, I think, four or five years, and it's an automated tech spot. It's not called therapy, but right. you know, kind of, it's they just can't call it therapy, but it, mm-hmm. that's what kind of they're doing. What do you think the future of therapy is? Um, well, I'm a little biased in my answer on this, but I mean, first of all, the future of therapy could be a lot of different things, but mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of where I see therapy going, um, you know, as I, I am somebody who provides, uh, goes under a lot of different names, but telemental health or video sessions or whatever you want to call it. And I, I tend to think that, that the future of therapy is in, um, using technology to be able to engage people in therapy who might not 
you know, have otherwise been able to, you know, due to my availability for video sessions, I can see people all over California, um, you know, people who live in, you know, a town of 2,000 people who maybe they don't even have a therapist available, or if they do, it's somebody they know and it feels uncomfortable. And, you know, it's not like, oh, well, I guess I'm stuck without therapy. It's like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to explore doing video sessions with somebody. Um, and I, it's my hope that if this kind of becomes where we're going with therapy, that it can be kind of virtual in nature. It doesn't have to just be person to person in the office that right now it's kind of a, a, a gray area in terms of if you're able to practice across state lines and I mm. won't do all that, but mm. it's my hope that licensing boards catch up with technology and we start to have the ability to, you know, see people anywhere um, for therapy, you know, as long as you both have an internet connection and speak the same language, um, you know, you can, you can do therapy. And it's, it's my hope that, that the world of therapy and the availability of therapy continues to grow in that direction. I'm, I'm glad that you said that because a couple months ago I was, I was just thinking, you know, kind of doing some deep thinking and I got on my whiteboard and I'm thinking about Santa mine, you know, the vision and the product, the product roadmap, what I want it to be. And that was something that I was thinking about. Well, that I do want it to be. I want, mm -hmm. I want it to be, you know, like a connection to the world where therapists can provide therapy to somebody in, mm -hmm. in Africa or somebody in Germany or in China, as, you know, as long as the language is, um, you know, as long as you speak English or you speak Spanish mm -hmm. or Chinese. And, you know, then I started doing some research about, you know, America and, you know, the licensing state by state. And then I started getting like, oh, man. And one of my dreams is to for there to be a, um, you know, a, a worldwide license where you can practice around the world. Yeah. And I was, I was in my room thinking like, wow, that'd be amazing if I could like help to make that happen. So I'm glad you said that because we're on the same page. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That would be I would love it if that was the future of psychology. Yeah. Well, uh, this was great. You know, this was more so uh, kind of a selfish podcast because I was <laughs> I was really interested in EMDR, but I have had a lot of people, um, you know, like I said, there have been hours and hours listened mm -hmm. of, of your EMDR um, segments on Santa Mine, and people have been asking me questions about it, and I have to refer them to your audio segments or, you know, online because I don't know anything about it. But um, we're going to have to do a part two and do, you know, talk about sure. some other things. Um, but thank you so much for, you know, being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for, you know, recording those segments and being one of the first believers because in those first days I was kind of like, you know, it was, it was hard and I was like, oh, nobody likes this. And you know, every time you send something, I got excited because, again, I'm from a, a doctor. So thank you. I really appreciate it. You are very welcome. Uh, thank you for creating Sanomind. I think it's a it's a great mental health resource. Thank you. I'll mm -hmm. talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.